This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. My guest today is Navida Khan, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Johns Hopkins University. We'll be talking about her book, In Quest of a Shared Planet, Negotiating Climate from the Global South, published recently by Fordham University Press. So thank you very much, Navida, for joining us today. Thank you, Aliza, for inviting me. I'm very excited about the conversation. Me too. So let's start by getting to know you and your background as an anthropologist. How did anthropology bring you to writing a book about climate negotiations and the conference of parties? Uh, Well, I started off as an anthropologist of religion. So there was nothing in my past that indicated I would show up here to study uh, climate negotiations. But at some point after I was done with writing my first book, you know, that comes out of my doctoral dissertation and was based on Pakistan, um, I I decided I wanted to go home to Bangladesh to work on uh, Bangladesh itself. And all the issues that I was working on in Pakistan were just not transportable to Bangladesh. Bangladesh people were not keen to talk about Islam and mosques and, you know, and what it is to be uh, religious, etc. Not to say that they aren't committed to those issues, but it wasn't quite in the public sphere like it was in uh, Pakistan. But what was going on was the COP meeting in Bali at that time. And so I heard on the radio, on the television, all this talk about uh, climate negotiations. And of course, being in Bangladesh, Bangladesh being so proud of itself as being like on the forefront of uh, fighting uh, climate, there was a lot of of, uh, you know, conversations with practitioners talking about how Bangladeshis are being so resilient and innovative, etc. And so I thought, okay, I'm an anthropologist. I study whatever people are interested to talk about. This seems to be what Bangladeshis want to talk about. And so I started to, uh, you know, make a transition from working on religion to climate and uh, environmental issues. And that took a while. I had to retrain myself, but thank God for anthropology because it's one of those wonderful disciplines that allows you to reinvent yourself endlessly. And so I uh, learned up what I could and I started to do field work in Bangladesh in one of these sites that were considered to be extremely vulnerable to climate change. But I was also fascinated by the poetry of the place because it's islands in the middle of a very large river system and the islands break and they reform and people live on them and then they go live on other islands and then come back to the original islands. And so I thought, wow, this is an amazing anthropological inquiry, which is to ask, you know, uh, uh, how do people live on moving land? Everything of ours is so connected to a kind of stability premised on land being stable. And uh, here were people who were trying to have uh, land tenure and uh, kinship relations, etc. 
but with moving land. So once I got working on that, the climate stuff went a little bit into the background. But then out of the blue, there was this like flyer in my field site uh, about a man, a Bangladeshi man, a local man who had gone to Durban, South Africa, to the negotiations and and he wanted to talk about it. It was so bizarre, like out of context in the everyday life of people there. I thought, this is interesting. Like how how, how is this scale, you know, traverse this difference of scale from, you know, a little island in Bangladesh all the way to Durban, South Africa for people who at most go to the capital and back, capital of Bangladesh and back. And so in asking that question and trying to follow the pathways, the NGOs that try to reach out to local constituencies that make it possible for people to go to these places to actually testify to the suffering that they are experiencing because of being in the frontiers of climate change. I got there and I thought, this is interesting. This is a whole other site, you know, where people who I work with and feel so closely to suddenly started to sound like uh, like puppets or like as though their words didn't have any traction, right? And they blended in with the words of other people, indigenous people from different parts of the world, etc. I mean, it was like this huge echo chamber of people talking and it wasn't clear to me what was going on and who was listening and uh, and so I thought okay well this is bad I can either decamp and I don't want to work on this anymore because it doesn't really speak to my heart or it's like an intellectual puzzle like what's going on here and so I kept going back and, and, you know, being an anthropologist again, you, I thought, okay, I can learn this. I just have to stay here long enough, you know, and, uh, and so I'm sorry, this is a very long answer to your question, but basically what I'm saying is that anthropology is one of these wonderful disciplines that allows you to ask, uh, questions that are in sync with the people you, uh, amongst whom you're working and allows the question to evolve as well and allows you to think you can do uh, stuff that otherwise traditionally might fall into the rubric under the rubric of political science or sociology mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah, I for one, I for one really appreciate the long answer because you're showing us how you know this process takes so long, right? And something else that stood out to me in the book was how you talk about your slow conversion to the process of the negotiations in keeping with the you know length of the answer, and you ask what is at stake in staying with the negotiations. So. Like you, I'm also especially curious about this from the perspective of the global south. So what did centering on the delegates from Bangladesh tell you about the stakes of slaying, staying with the slow process? Um, yeah, so as I was saying, I came in th- through Bangladesh, right? And I entered through Bangladeshi civil society activists and uh, NGO people, etc. And at least from their perspective, it was a little frustrating at first, because as I said, there are platforms for them to speak, but it's not clear who's listening. Right. But at some point I decided, okay, let me actually try to get to the heart of why people are here, which is negotiations, not just to bear testimony to to what's going on uh, in different parts of the world. So once I turned to negotiations and I started to speak with the Bangladeshi negotiators and shadowing them and speaking to them in Bangladesh as well. I started to realize how much hard work was involved in making yourself a negotiator, uh, what it meant to acquire the kind of seriousness and gravitas to be heard within this system. And within this process, just because you were from this poor country that didn't really have much clout, say, within the economic arenas or political arenas, didn't matter. The fact 
that and also the fact that you came from a poor country that was experiencing climate change was not what was the most significant thing. What was significant is that you really were, um, you know, you had institutional memory and you could pass on experiences. You could teach other junior negotiators from other parts of the world and that you were growing this kind of network of Global South negotiators uh to be a formidable group within this process right and that i i i was very persuaded by i felt that the process of interacting with one another of coming to understand what it means to be from Ethiopia, speaking to somebody from Bangladesh, speaking to somebody from an island nation, you know, like Tuvalu, for instance, learning what uh, what it means to how we are different, but also in some ways uh, crucially uh, similar. Uh, I thought that was very eye-opening. You know, and that's how I came to be converted to it, uh, convinced that for even if the uh, in terms of climate change and radical climate action, this process is so slow and delivering on it. But in terms of stitching these countries together at another register, at not one where they take for granted that they're just victims of a long, uh, you know, of capitalism as a world system, or prior to that even, you know, colonialism uh, um, and imperialism, it wasn't only that, it was also this kind of very pragmatic uh, feeling for one another, you know, being able to represent one another's voices, right? Uh, I really appreciated that. And I thought uh, that I, this I could show the interstitching that's happening at that level. Mm, that is so interesting. And you now you mentioned the trainings that go into becoming a negotiator and something in the book that stood out to me was how negotiation can also become a vocation for many. And at times that vocation is oriented towards deferral rather than decisive action. So I'm very curious about the political limits and possibilities of keeping with negotiation as vocation. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's uh, that's great that you picked up on that, uh, you know, in terms of what the training is, because, you know, I went into the training thinking that these uh, as, uh, Global South negotiators are being trained to make demands and to stand their ground. And I realized that there would be they they, would, they they knew the limits of their power. They were going in to slow the process down so that, uh, you know, undue due pressures on their countries in terms of mitigation goals, etc., would not just like be clamped on simply because, you know, Europe wants a fully top-down, you know, model, or America wants every single country to do its bit or whatever, right? So I just thought, okay, this is good. They're allowing for a kind of slowness, uh, which allows for people to actually consider how their position, which they think is so common sense, you know, climate change is a global threat and everybody has to stand up and fight together, sounds so commonsensical, is actually quite universalistic and quite oppressive, right? And so slowing that process down so that they realize that their words don't carry the kind of moral authority that they're attributing to themselves and that they really have to think about uh, how they sound to others, right? Um, And how it is that uh, they have to negotiate, really negotiate, not just throw their weight around. Um, I thought that was good. I mean, in a way, of course, it's very frustrating because, you know, if you listen to the global north, they're saying, you know, obstructors, these are obstructors. And some of them certainly, I mean, the way Saudi Arabia functions within the system, I would definitely say obstruction, you know. But uh, some of these other countries, it's more like, no, have you thought about how to bring in the 
complete unfairness of your claims, you know, into uh, into some sort of question, right? I mean, this is a space you cannot bring up the past of colonialism or extractivism or settler colonialism or any of that. This is not that space. They've already foreclosed uh, talking about that. You can say more industrialized, industrialized earlier, more responsible for uh, carbon emissions, but none of this other stuff, right? So within these bounds, how to remind people about this past is actually also quite creative and interesting to watch. Yeah, that really comes across in the book. And, you know, in terms of the creativity that comes within these bounds, um, something that stood out to me was the language around loss and damage. Um, Especially you show us that through the viewpoint of Bangladeshi, Bangladeshi delegates, but also others. So could you tell us about what loss and damage signify in this context? And how are planetary futures negotiated and contested through loss and damage? That's great. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, loss and damage is one of these issues. It's a scrappy issue. No one thought it had a future. It had first been brought up by uh, small island nations. You know, if you are a reader of of science fiction, you will have come across Kim Stanley Robinson. And one of his early, early books is about uh, 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 small island nations coming to D.C., to um, try and get people to realize that, you know, what what ocean rise means for small countries like theirs, right? Um, To even raise the question of what it is for countries to not just suffer from uh, temporary inundation, but to lose sovereignty entirely through the loss of territory, right? All of these uh, issues that have been brought up by small island nations, but no one was paying attention to them, not African nations, not uh, least developed countries, nobody, because they were caught up in their own issues, right? So, it was really amazing how staying that line and proper uh, advocating for themselves and not just to global south, also to the global north, right? Um, small island nations managed to make this a global issue, right? They managed to... Uh, create enough solidarity with least developed countries and with African nations to be able to have it be put on the agenda over and over again. And if something shows up in the agenda, it has to be discussed. And if it's discussed enough, it has to go somewhere. And, you know, talk shops, all these ways to like not do anything serious about it just went on until finally it was a pillar in the Paris Agreement. And then it got a a mechanism and a mechanism means that it has to have funding. And so, you know, it's becoming more of a presence. I don't want to go into the politics of why it took so long, but the interesting thing is it is an issue that points to the kind of interstitching that I'm talking about and what it can produce in terms of, uh, you know, solidarity and, uh, and, uh, and pressure points on the, on the world system. That being said, loss and damage is really uh, has to be ultimately a national issue because for loss and damage to have teeth, it has to be litigation that shows uh, that there's loss and damage. Like what's happening within the system, the money that even the mechanism is going to get is all going to go towards small palliative, uh, palliative, sorry, uh, you know, um, uh, efforts at building, uh, you know, building a, a dam here or creating shoreline defense there, etc. But the real changes at the level of state behavior has to come through national litigation. So the loss and damage here is really a signal to all the countries, and not just countries, all the what they call subnationals, children, youth, uh, you know, uh, municipalities, etc., to not just do their bits, but to actually fight to make sure that there's change within their countries. So in terms of planetary futures, I mean, 
I really, I'm thinking that uh, we have to now shift away from the negotiations because the negotiations are really about uh, creating the metrics now and making sure that everybody is meeting those metrics. And we have to move towards litigation. And that's really where all the activity is going to be in the next, I think, decades to come. Wow, that is really fascinating. And you know, in terms of the interstitching that you're after, um, I want to talk a little bit about my f- personally favorite chapter that I think really reflects that. And since I'm the host, I get to be a <laughs> bit selfish about it. Um, so my favorite chapter was the one centering on in-between figures in climate negotiations. So you follow five people and you take us through a multitude of political leanings that rub up against each other and maybe interstitch with each other in the conference of parties. So, you know, we see a range from a politics of optimism to activist politics, resisting co-optation, or from quiet diplomacy to neoliberal approaches to South-South relations. So how did this careful attention to the in-between enrich your understanding of the political work being done within the process? Great question. Um, you know, the the process sets itself up to make a very clear distinction between the technical and the political. So the first week is considered, the, the COPs are two-week long uh, meetings. Uh, so the first part of the conference is uh, considered technical. And that's where all the official delegates from various, you know, ministries, ministries of environment, climate change, forests and natural resources come. By the way, Interestingly, Saudi Arabia doesn't send any any ministerial level people. It sends CEOs from its oil company as its official delegates to give you a sense of, uh, you know, uh, how they see their interests within this process, right? Um, uh, so, and you know, US has uh, got a huge delegation, and they cover the range from like people who are interested in private using this as an opportunity to cut private deals, etc., to, you know, the absolutely public-minded lawyer, activist lawyer types, right? So um, that there's also interesting heterogeneity there. But uh, in terms of... Um, you know, the political, the political is when heads of states show up, right? And either they show up even before the meetings start, or they show up in the second week. But politics is considered to be the realm of ministers and and secretaries and so on. And part of the reason there is that in that second part, it's considered that we are no longer in negotiation over the text. We are now in the realm of applying pressures behind the scene to get agreement to various decisions, right? So, for example, in Paris in 2015, Obama was calling up China, China's premier, to say, oh, we've got to do something. And that that's what's considered the political, right? And there's a very definitive resistance to considering the technical as political because they don't want to, you know, people who are involved in the process, they don't want to make it politicized. They feel that if they can keep the language of technicalness going, then they're able to... um, make the whole thing seem like it's just a matter of a technicality. We're caught up on a technicality. We're thinking of different modalities to get around this technical problem, you know? And in that way, they can. it's more of this politics of deferral, as I was telling you, right? And so obviously any anthropologist going in will say, uh, no, everything is political. The whole thing, you know, the first part is also political, as political, if not more so, where there's real work being done while trying to deflect uh, attention away from it is the political anytime you have a space for equivocation or some sort of you know disagreement is a site of pol- the political so that's why it seemed to me very easy to just think of the whole thing as in the realm of the political I didn't think I was making any kind of important or radical moves there it seemed like anthropology just allowed me to assume that and then just treat it like that you know um but in terms of 
political, like what kind of politics does this augur for the world? As I said, you know, the litigation is definitely a part of it. But the fact, what I what I saw over the course of, uh, uh, you know, observing this process over so many years, and I've continued to do so, is just the huge expansion of youth participation, you know. And this is seen as, um, and youth participating in different ways, like complicit or collaborating with the system or critical of the system, but still within it or outside the system and booing at it, you know? So that kind of youth engagement is intense and very, and it's the, it's the thing that produces a kind of, um, you know, the kind of disruption to the habitual of uh, negotiating in a way Weirdly, you know, people suffering in the front lines, the people who I followed all the way to the process, couldn't. Like, I don't know what it is. There's a certain fascination with the figure of the youth. And this is not just, you know, youth from the industrialized um, countries. This is global youth, right? But there's something about uh, youth shaming that seems to carry some efficacy within this system. And I thought that was quite interesting. I mean, I don't myself work on it, but I think it's really worthwhile studying. Yeah, that is quite interesting. And I really appreciated how in your response you went through sort of different scales um, that come up within the process. And that's also something that you expertly do throughout the book. So, you know, as you start the book, you share with us how conveying the magnitude of the meetings was a challenge for you. But you also challenge yourself, I think, by attending to climate change in a global scale as well. Um, but you're also, you know, honest about being very interested about the individuals that take part in the negotiations. So can you tell us about how you navigated these multiple scales during your fieldwork and your writing? I mean, I went a little mad because <laughs> I, you know, I got there and I started attending, you know, uh, constituency meetings and the constituency I belonged to was researchers, right? Their, their, their constituency is called Ringos. So I started to go to the daily Ringo meetings. And in the Ringo meetings, you know, people stand up to say what they're observing in their corner of the process, right? They're very clear experts who are following one issue or one one article or one country or whatever. And then when it would come time my, to stand up and introduce myself, I would say, and I'm studying the process and people would start laughing. And they, they thought I was joking, because you know? no one does this. It's not conceivable. And I won't say that I did it either. I mean, it's, it's truly not conceivable. Because climate is different in every single room. And climate is not just different now. There's also discussions going on about the past. There's also discussions going on about what's going to prevail 50 years from now in terms of finance goals, etc. So every single room is like you're dealing with a different space-time configuration in terms of what is climate. So I swear, I've, I used to feel like such an idiot, like saying, I'm studying the process. And they'd be like, what? What do, you, what do you mean <laughs> you're studying the process, right? And of course, no one took me seriously. I mean, people would give me time only because the way that the process works, if you show up, people think you're serious and then they start to pull, take you along or whatever. But it was so patronizing, you know, it was just like this little thing says that she wants to study the whole process, you know, <laughs> you know so I would just uh, go along, you know, and I really had no idea what I was studying, you know, initially I went in and I said, I'm interested in adaptation because that's what Bangladesh seemed to be interested in. Then I noticed that Bangladesh wasn't actually doing much on adaptation, but interestingly, they were doing something more on mitigation. So then I had to learn up all that and start to follow that. Then loss and damage suddenly came along and I started to like study up on that and follow that. So the one thing I used as my one sort of like guiding star was whatever the Bangladeshi delegation widely understood was looking at. Without that orientation, I think I would have lost it a long time ago. 
right? So, for example, for a couple of years, the delegates were not really that interested in the delegate the negotiations, but they were far more interested in what was going on in the exhibitions and to create bilateral relations. So I followed them there, you know, and I got to understand the other parts of this meeting, which is to create uh, business deals or bilateral trade deals, etc. you know. So, uh, yeah, so that was basically how I was trying to deal with the scale issue. But also there's a thing that if you go enough and you've forced yourself to stare at the CC cameras, right, that are constantly just like, you know, showing you all the things and you set yourself a task saying, do I understand 50% of what they're referring to? I haven't been to all of those uh, things, but do I know what it's about? right? I feel like I have some grasp, you know, but the weird thing is, of course, you come back and you feel like you really nailed the discourse. The discourse has shifted within a year, right? So you were hearing net zero one year. The next time you come back and the uh, activists have found a way to push back against that and they're saying, no, we need absolute zero. So now it's absolute zero, you know? So to stay on top of the discourse was also quite fun and challenging in its own way <laughs> but yeah yeah that's so interesting so it was you know also like the time passing I guess when you do this research was figuring into <laughs> your working through the madness <laughs> yes it really is true you know how it is like if you go back to the field it's different than if you just had gone there the one time no matter how long a period of time you stayed for that first step something happens when you leave and you come back when you come back it's a whole different orientation towards you right then people start to think that you actually will come back again you know mm-hmm. Or that you have an investment, you know, so. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, that's so interesting. Thanks for sharing that with us. Um, yeah, and, you know, I was also very interested in your attention to space. Like, you really describe the weight of corridor conversations or, you know, you take the time to really describe the spaces in which meetings or presentations are held. And, you know, it really helped me to make the book come alive. But I want to hear from you why it was important for you to make these spaces come alive. Yeah, I mean, uh, I do primarily think of myself as an anthropologist of space, actually. So that was part of the reason why that attention was sort of built into uh, uh, my fieldwork. Because my first book was really on mosques, on the construction of mosques. And the second book was about land and its movable quality. So I am very interested in the materiality, the the infrastructural, the, you know, the technical, uh, physical dimensions of things. And the scale of it blows you away. I mean, when you hear conference of parties, it sounds like, you know, the 200 or so countries sending along a few delegates and then uh, and that. But when you enter in, you realize it's a city. And no one has a sense of like how it is that a city is constructed uh, for these two weeks of meetings, you know. I mean, the UN has the system down. They have a book for any country that's going to be the host country. And that book is really about how do you construct a city, right? And so um, 
And also, you know, talking to Richard Kinley, who I talk about in that in-between chapter that you liked, uh, he was the he was the he was the mastermind of the city, right? And you know, he was such a big guy and so high up. But when you talk to him, you realize, wow, all he was doing is making sure that the doors were being opened, that people were at the doors, that uh, water was being passed out, that the bathrooms were not clogged. <laughs> <laughs> you realize it's, important. <laughs> it's very important oh my god let me just tell you in egypt it was crazy in egypt it was in sharm el sheikh which is a resort town and not at all built for this kind of meeting so they created the city uh you know for all sorts of political reasons well in the middle of the desert right i mean the first day we go in the the, the workers are all there still putting together the women's bathroom I mean, that is so crazy. Everybody knows that women's bathrooms should be built first before everything else, right? <laughs> it was so bad. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was literally like the room would be uh, built and then a woman would enter into it. Then the next room would be built and the next one. It was so crazy. Anyway, so this is just to give you a sense of like the physical really, really jumps out at you because it's so taxing this system, this process, it's so physically taxing that uh, that you have to pay attention, you know. I mean, you, it tells you a lot about the countries that are hosting it to see how they've set it up to be uh, helpful or not helpful, to facilitate negotiations or not, right? Um, I mean, I was stunned by how difficult they made life in Egypt right? I mean, there wasn't water even to be bought inside the space. It was it, it, it was very physically taxing, you know? And, uh, and some other countries, for example, set it up such that you could almost never find the negotiating rooms, you know? It was, yeah, so it tells you a lot about the countries, uh, the way that they organize, you know, use the same guidebook, but that they set it up the way they set it up and it's set up to be you know hidden spaces in full view right wow so that that is so fascinating and i'm so glad we got to hear the women's bathroom story that's not in the book (laughs) (laughs) but it really tells you a lot (laughs) yeah i was yeah (laughs) i was also curious about what came across to me as a confessional mode you have from time to time in the book? And you mentioned this a little bit, but sometimes you say, you know, you feel like a fraud perhaps or an interloper. Sometimes, especially in interacting with climate activists, you ask what had academics done for their moment, reflecting back on your role there. So, yeah, can you tell us more about what moved you towards this confessional mode and how you navigated your positionality within all that? Yeah, I thought a lot about it because, you know, when the book uh, got rejected the first time oh. around, the, uh, the, one of the complaints was that, you know, why is she so strongly featured in the book? The book should be about the process and they didn't really like the personal mode. And so I've thought back to why I even took it up uh, because it's not one that I've, you know, exercised as a general rule in my other books Um, but I think it's because I really I found the system the process so bewildering and I had been reading uh, Goethe actually this little article by uh, essay by Goethe on the self as an instrument right and he was talking because he was advocating a kind of scientific method which was not lab based which didn't mean 
tearing things apart or breaking things apart to look at the insides of things, you know, like the Newtonian science that was just starting up uh, in his time. Um, And so he was uh, more about how do you treat your body as an instrument? And of course, that's what we do as anthropologists all the time, is we treat ourselves as a gauge for... uh, our own, of course, perceptual uh, edifices, but also as an orientation towards the field, right? Gut feelings and instincts and uh, or whatever, even lassitude and boredom, right? Being important cues. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll start there, you know? And then at some point I just started noticing that I was just like following Asad like a, you know, like a fan, so I thought, yeah, <laughs> I should I should just fess up to it, you know, and try to analyze it for what it is. <laughs> you know. I mean, they're charismatic figures. You end up uh, following charismatic figures. But, uh, you know, I just thought I would just make a method out of it, you know, or and, and I would just uh, I would also be honest why I'm doing that or whatever. I don't know. It's not a mode that I'm generally comfortable with, but I didn't know how else to explain uh, how confusing this was and how it started to sort itself out a little bit to me. And I didn't know if it's because I didn't have the right kind of politics. So if you have the right kind of politics, you go in and you're more able to like identify who falls into what kind of of uh, of a of a structural role, I think I I found I, I think the whole system was opaque to me, and I thought that uh, sort of paying a little bit of attention to how this opacity got fill, uh, got sorted or got a little leavened might help with also orienting other people coming into the process, you know. I did originally think I was just writing a guidebook. Right. Uh, but and so that was part of it, maybe. But after a while, I realized I, I, I trained as a scholar. It still ended up just being a regular book. It wasn't quite the guidebook <laughs> I wanted it to be, you know, <laughs> you know like seemed, a tourist book. Yeah. So. <laughs> it seems like it was tricky to guide. <laughs> Very tricky. It sounds like that would have been a more difficult book to write. <laughs> Much more difficult, you know, because you ha- you would have to appeal to people uh, to a much wider range of expectations and uh, and uh, you know tastes. Uh, yeah, so yeah, initially I did think I was going to because you know I've only ever worked in places where people have not been either English speakers or even literate, you know, like book reading, literate, etc. So this was the first time I was working with uh, people who were probably like so way educated as opposed to, you know, the global standards or whatever. I thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice to write a book purely for them, right? And I'm not sure because they are so in it, that they're not necessarily that interested in having the retrospect. Like they think somebody else will do it or it's not important or interesting, etc. right? So ultimately I had to sort of change my sense of an audience and have it be sort of people who are interested in, in climate or concerned about global processes or youth activists, you know, one or any kind of activist wanting to get some sense of what's going on here. So yeah, I had to change my sense of who the book is for. Hmm. Well, I'm so glad that the book turned out the way that it turned out. <laughs> and it got, you know, churned out this way in the review process. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so as we near the end of our conversation, I want to turn to the book's title and taking a cue from it, I'd love to hear about how you hope the book contributes to the quest of a shared planet. Oh, that's a good question. First of all, I have to thank my editor um, uh, at Fordham for suggesting the title to me. He was, um, you know, 
just extremely keen for uh, for the book to be read widely, and uh, and I appreciate that very much because you know he put in a lot of effort to making sure that it got a nice cover and that uh, uh, that you know it had. Um, it had a nice title and he also helped me very much with the introduction as well, you know, to make sure that it was right away readable. This is Tom Lay at Fordham. And so I have him to thank for that. Uh, but he also uh, wanted me to uh, make clear the fact that it was being written from the perspective of the global South, right? And uh, and so that's why Global South appears so prominently in the title. But in terms of how it actually realizes the promise of the title, the book itself, um, I just felt that, you know, being in America and the United States and teaching in an institution here, I felt like climate is only ever talked about from the perspective of the U.S., either in terms of what the U.S. has done to contribute to it or how it should mitigate or how it's going to impact people, etc., and that there is a way in which there's a leaching out of complexity of the rest of the world, like the rest of the world suffers climate impacts but can't actually be contributors to climate politics, right? I mean, people testify to their own suffering, but their participation in anything like uh, climate politics is just not interesting to people here. I mean, this I ran into when I was approaching uh, you know, uh, uh, book publishers like Basic and so on, and they have such a strong uh, book list on climate. So I thought this might be of interest. And I had a lovely conversation with an editor there, and she said, you know, it's not from the U.S. perspective, right? And and she was quite honest about it. She's like, it's really it would be really hard to sell. And so I thought, okay, you know, if nothing else, what this book uh, it the, its very simple ambition is is to make really real for people how Bangladeshis are political and within the process effective and meaningful, and and not just them, all these other activists and youth, etc. Right, and so I think that that was it. It was just to redress the sense that the rest of the world hasn't politics or can't contribute to politics that I wanted to that I wanted to write the book. Uh, in terms of a shared planet, I mean, that picture in the front gives you a sense of just how tortured something like a entwining is, right? And uh, and you know that's part of it is to is just this recognition that you know uh, that the claims on resources, the sense of entitlement over resources, and the deprivation it daily delivers to people around the world, right, is really is really something that I wanted to um, have people have a sense for. If they got a sense of investment that rest of the world had uh, thinking, reasoning, fighting people, that there might be less of a sense that all of it belongs to us. I don't know. <laughs> no, <laughs> that, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you very much for sharing that and i think that's so important and i think the book really makes a case for that um so lastly again keeping on the theme of the future what is next for you um i know you mentioned some simultaneous projects so what's been brewing alongside this book and what comes next um, so, you know, this has been, this turn to climate, to environment has been extremely, extremely productive for me in the sense that it really sparked a lot of thoughts and ideas, etc. So this book is actually part of a trilogy. <laughs> I know it sounds so ridiculous, like who wants to read three of my books? But anyway, <laughs> it's really, I know. mostly from the world <laughs> So the, uh, yeah, so the first book, as I said, is based on the fieldwork that I did in Bangladesh on those islands and it asked the question of how do we as anthropologists give an account of nature 
right? Uh, because anthropology for so long has been so worried about environmental determinism and racism, etc. This has really uh, been a difficult question. And of course, there are lots of creative approaches to it now. And, you know, I was joining my voices with people like Beth Povinelli and so on in saying there is a way in which one can think about nature uh, uh, within the social, not just as, as the outside of the social. That book is out, and it came out through Duke University Press, and uh, and it's called River Life in the Upspring of Nature, a completely poetic and non-prosaic title, unlike this one, uh, and then this one, and then the third one that I'm trying to finish right now really tries to think about, bring down climate change to the scale of the, of the everyday, and to uh, ask, you know, how is... Uh, how is household or householding becoming difficult, right? And what, how does, what does that difficulty mean in terms of social relations, in terms of politics? Really focused very closely on a set of house, households that I followed, again, in the same field site in Bangladesh. And then um, for my next project, and this is like a 15-year project, right? Like I have to start <laughs> training for it now, and I might be ready to do this field work in five years and, you know, have the book out and maybe if I'm alive, you know, 15 years or whatever. <laughs> so I really, when I went to Egypt to Sharma el-Sheikh, I went also to Jordan to see Petra. Uh, and when I was in Petra, what I realized was that it brought together the, all these interests I had in over the course of my academic life, like it was a site uh, of of a pre-Islamic uh, civilization, and you know I used to work on Islam, and so I'm very interested in the relationship to you know infidels or at the outside of Islam, right? So I got interested in that. The and then also Petra was so interestingly connected to uh, the ancient world, etc. That's also really, really interesting to me. The fact is then the uh, civilization went into deep decline and stayed sort of like unused for centuries and was used for transhumanance by Bedouin, um, Bedouins. And so I'm very interested in how after it was excavated and became a tourist site as it is now, Bedouins continue to live in it. You know, I was stuck there till very late at night because I had a very over-enthusiastic guide and I saw just how many people live in there, right? Which was very interesting to me. And then I'm also really interested in the fact of uh, the excavation that has continued, even though as you excavate the the site becomes open to climactic destruction, right? What does it mean to excavate, uh, to recover a kind of history, to redress the place of uh, pre-Islamic Muslim, uh, pre-Islamic Arabs within the world, but at the same time, uh, you know, also hasten the destruction of these sites, right? So that's where the sort of like loss and damage part of things come in. So as you see, it brings together all of these things and I haven't quite figured out what I'm going to do with it, but I'd like to, you know, I'm, I'm starting to study all the languages I need to go do fieldwork there one day. <laughs> well, anyway. These are all so interesting. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to um, the completion of the trilogy, if a book can ever be complete, <laughs> and yeah. to this book in 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> I hope 15. 15 is being, uh, you know, ambitious. <laughs> With a but I just figured, month. like, yeah, because I figure after I've brought out three books, who wants a book from me? So I have time, you know. I'll have bought myself some time. So, <laughs> Well, we'll be looking forward to that book. And no, hopefully thank you. we'll have you back. But for now, thank you very much, Navira, for joining us and for your insights. Thank you very much for the invitation. I very much enjoyed this opportunity to talk about the book. The pleasure is all mine. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. This discussion of In Quest of a Shared Planet, Negotiating Climate from the Global South, published by Fordham University Press in 2023, is brought to you by the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. <laughs>